Welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. I'm Lewis Williams. And I'm Calvin Ostrom. The Philosopher's Nest is a podcast that showcases the work, insights and experiences of graduate students in philosophy. This podcast is generously supported by the American Philosophical Association, the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford, and Linnica College, Oxford. Today we're going to be joined by Alexander Stushinov, a PhD student at McGill University. We'll be talking about Alex's former life as a touring musician, his master studies at Gau Leuve in the University of Oxford, and his doctoral work on the philosophy of nature. You can find snippets of Alex's music on his Instagram page, patient underscore hands. And if you'd like to get in touch with Alex, you can email him at alexander.stushinov at mcgill.ca. Alex Stushinov, welcome to the Philosopher's Nest. Thank you. So like our previous guest that we've had on the podcast, Lorenzo Elijah, who studied composition at university, and like our previous guest, Logan Mitchell, who was a touring performer before he came on to pursue his doctoral studies, you, of course, came into philosophy from a background in music. Uh, so what did that journey look like for you? Well, I think I told you guys in my you know, introductory emails that I had no interest in ever going to university or anything like that. So in high school, I was extremely bored and depressed. And the only thing I could think of doing was being a musician. It was kind of the only thing I cared about. But I didn't have a musical upbringing, let's say. Like I, I didn't take a guitar lesson until I was 26, for instance. But I just kind of taught myself everything. And it was kind of during this home recording renaissance that was happening in like the late 2000s, early 2010s. And so I started doing that. And then I did some traveling after high school and then eventually decided to just enroll at like the local university in my hometown. I did some classes there and then I decided to come to Montreal to Concordia to enroll in electroacoustic studies here, which was like a it's like a comprehensive program in the study of sound. You do like a little bit of watered down physics. You study programs like compositional programs like Max MSP and things like that. You study recording, you do electroacoustic ear training. So like you know, you can do tonal ear training, like what kind of seventh chord is this? Or you can do electroacoustic ear training, which is like how many milliseconds was that blip of sound? And you can tell based on literally the color, because the longer frequencies require more milliseconds, let's say, to actually propagate. Wow. You know? Yeah. Wow. I mean, that sounds super interesting and really specific. And I wonder if, and if that helped you out when as a musician, you toured in Japan. At least I remember you telling us about this in your email. You know, what was it like being in Japan? And you know, how different was that from, I guess, Canada? <laughs> yeah. So first part of the question, did it help? Well, it killed my creativity, I would say. Oh, because right. you started making music purely for like, quote unquote, exercises in school, yeah. which are like devoid of all emotional content. Hmm. Did it help technically? Yes, absolutely. Insofar as it gives you this like weird precision. Did it help in Japan? Well, yes and no, because, you know, I can't exactly tell like the audio engineer, like we're having feedback at 800 hertz, like you need to give me a cut at 800 hertz, <laughs> you know, because there's a big communication gap there. And I kind of knew that going in. So when I did tour, I don't know if you guys know anything about instruments, but I had a modular synthesizer. So I play guitar, I sing, and I run both of those plus like my phone into a modular synthesizer, which I also use. And then I mix everything there and monitor it myself. So I can set my own mix. And basically, that was just like a way to get around having to deal with like monitoring issues in a live setting, which is like the, the bane of all live musicians. Mm. <laughs> oh, but then what was it like touring? It was way better than touring Canada. Just far and away better. 
because you'll drive like six or 800 kilometers like for a show in Canada. Hmm. And in Japan, you know, like I had no car. I took a, I took trains everywhere. I got like a rail pass. Hmm. It's a little bit weird. Like you get paid, you get guaranteed no money. And when people come to the show, the bouncer asks them, who are you here to see? And then they say who they're here to see. And if it's not you, you get no money from their ticket. But if it is you, you get all the money from their ticket. Oh, so it's this weird setup where it's like, you know, if you're the headliner and you're 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 doing good, maybe you're making a lot of money that that night. And if you're like second tier, maybe you're making no money. That's but yeah, the audiences crazy. were like incredibly receptive, and people are just like so blown away that you bothered to come to their island. Like they don't they don't take for granted that like it's an easy journey or that you should come here. So when you do, it's like, oh my god, this means a lot to these people. Being an artist there is like subversive in a way because of the sort of like salary man culture and the um, pressure to conform and so on. Like, like I really felt like the musicians I met were like radical in a way, just for choosing to live a slightly alternative lifestyle. You can perhaps say the same thing about going on to become a philosopher as well. It's uh, a different kind of lifestyle. Obviously, it comes with the same kinds of precarities as well that being a, a musician comes with. So what was it about academic philosophy um, that enticed you to come back to it or, or to come to it more generally rather than the, uh, all, the, all the benefits of the life being as a touring musician? You know, that sounds like a lot of fun. I got into philosophy because electroacoustics was not hard enough. Like it was in the fine arts. It really felt like if you could breathe, you could get an A. It, it just was not rigorous. And my program in particular kind of lacked focus. Like the people who were really good and knew what they wanted to do left. And they did mechanical, electrical engineering. They did computer science, composition degrees. That made way more sense than this kind of catch-all that we were doing. But anyways, so I didn't like the program. I wanted to drop out. I was touring summer 2016. At that same time, my mom got diagnosed with cancer. I had some other like pretty serious problems in my personal life. I don't know what we can talk about here. I got sexually assaulted in my hometown. So like I was trying to move home to like hang with my mom. And then I couldn't go home ultimately because it was like, I'm just going to see this person everywhere I go because it's so small. And so I moved back to Montreal kind of like begrudgingly. And I switched my major to philosophy like five days after classes started, which would not be possible in a place like Oxford. And the department like manager guy just like totally helped me out, saved my life, you know got me transfer credits and so on. And I just went from there and it was like finally hard enough. And so um, I like fell in love with the history of philosophy, you know, specifically early modern, let's say. And then I kept going back in time to like trace the origins of their ideas. You know, where does Descartes get clarity and distinctness? Well, you have to look to Augustine. Well, you have to look to Plato, things like this. And so I just went further and further back in time until I got into ancient, like I'm from Saskatchewan, the French education I had was so bad that after three years, like, I didn't know that it was a gendered language, you know? And I learned Spanish when I was 18, Kyle. I was like, what the hell is this? La botella, you know, <laughs> la mesa, you know, la radio. It ends in an O. It should be masculine, you know? And then my friends were like, well, we have that in French. And so I just had no idea. And anyways, all this to say, I decided to learn ancient Greek at the like, end of my undergrad because I was just sick of being monolingual. And then, okay, then I, I knew I wanted to do grad school at some point, but um, I also knew that I wanted to make music and release it and kind of like do it professionally. And I wasn't getting any younger, basically. Hmm. 
So it was kind of like, well, I could either apply to like a PhD now when I was like 24, I guess, 23, 24, or I could take time off, like release some records and then come back to it after having give it like, given it an honest try. And so that's, that's like the route I pursued. Right. And after entering undergraduate philosophy at a later stage, as you did, um, what was your sort of approach applying to master's programs and what were your experiences there like? When I applied to um, KU Leuven and got in there, I had horrible administrative problems because it was fall 2020. They demanded in-person attendance. Don't know why, but um, the government wouldn't give me a visa to go. And so the university was like, well, then why don't you defer your acceptance until this, the winter term, until February? And I said, okay. And then immediately after this, they switched their classes to be online. You know, so that kind of sucks. I couldn't take them because I hadn't registered, right? And we love bureaucracy. And then when I did register in February, I tried registering for like the master's thesis, which is like a heavily, you know, they give you a lot of credits for this, right? And they wouldn't let me register for that because it's a quote unquote full year class. And so I couldn't register for that. And because I'm not from the European Union, I had to do a credit overload just to be enrolled. So I had to enroll in seven graduate classes for that term. And if I didn't, they would deport me. And I was like, you guys, I live on the farm in Saskatchewan. Like, where are you deporting me to? And where are you deporting me from? And they were like, either you register for them or you drop out. So I did. And I ended up doing, you know, all of the grad coursework in like one term. Whoa. While still taking a Greek class in Montreal. So I was doing this like remotely and, you know, in Leuven, like it's like an eight hour time difference. So my logic class is at three 30 in the morning. Everything else is at like seven or 8 AM, which was more doable, but the rest of it was busted. And then I did actually have to go to write my final exams. They wouldn't let you do those remote because it was quote too much work for the university to organize. So my supervisor told me that I should pretend to be disabled because then they wouldn't make me come if it was like too difficult to travel. But I was like, you know what? bucket like i want to see this country i want to come see this university and like meet my classmates so i decided to go i wrote my finals blah 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 and then i got covid and i got like the delta variant and it was actually it was funny because um at the time i was too young in saskatchewan to get the vaccine and because i was in belgium and not a resident they wouldn't give it to me either so i got delta on no vaxes and the university like was supposed to have services to like give you food delivery like grocery delivery but they, they, they never, ever responded to any of my efforts to contact them. But they would email me every day asking me to give them like contact tracing info on the people I was in contact with, which were my classmates, right? And they'd be like, we have no info on these like seven or eight people. And I'm like, if you literally type their name, dot last name at kuluven.be, you will reach them because they were students of the university. <laughs> but the university like claimed it could not reach them. So it kept being like, you need to tell them to get tested. You know, you need to get them in touch with us. And then I'd reply and be like, what about my groceries? No reply. <laughs> yeah, That's it was, absurd. It sucked. Yeah. And then at the time, so that Christmas, I had applied for um, a few other master's programs and I had gotten into the one at Oxford. Mm-hmm. So I had this like busted experience at live in and I was like, either I can stay for a full year. I've already done the classes and do like just a 10K word thesis. Or I can leave, go to Oxford and do a full master's. So I just, I just bounced, basically. The administration and bureaucracy was just awful. 
No, you then, of course, move to a uh, another demanding, notoriously demanding master's program, the MST yeah. in Ancient Philosophy at Oxford. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that was, of course, just after the lockdowns all finished. So in 2021. Yeah. Uh, how did that work for you? And how did the experience compare with the odd experiences um, so in Belgium? I would say somehow the bureaucracy was even worse, oh. which I didn't know was possible. Were you able to get your groceries or... Yes, yeah, so all of that stuff was fine. Yeah. And in fact, like I was supposed to, like it was totally unclear whether I was supposed to um, isolate when I arrived in the UK. And the, the like uh, immigration person was like, she just looked at me, she's like, you're fine. And I was like, what? Like, what are the rules? Like, you need to tell me whether I have to, you know. And anyway, it was just, it was funny seeing the UK's response after, which was a little bit more like scattered, let's say. Mm. But anyways, yeah, the MST, Oxford is the worst university I've ever attended. But I loved it. So academically, it was complete garbage. But once I saw that, I just spent all my time partying. And it was so fun. Like, it's such an incredible social place. And you're just like jammed into this like small circle with a ton of people that are really cool. And so uh, it, it was just a great place to hang out. And I think we had a special year last year, precisely because we were coming out of lockdown. So like everybody just had this insane desire to party, mm-hmm. you know, and like, I was never like this in undergrad. Like I didn't, I didn't drink from the ages of like 18 to 26. And then I went to grad school in Belgium. And then I went to grad school in the UK. And now I'm on a pipeline to alcoholism. You know what I mean? So <laughs> I just like, I just started drinking all the time. Anyway, so it was lots of fun. I'll put it that way. Yeah, well, what a difficult few years that you'd had beforehand, as, as you've said. I think that uh, that partying was was much needed. So, so credit to that. Well, um, yeah, and also just kind of like my, um, like I didn't really have an adolescence, let's say, because of my, you know, I was like really type A in undergrad, and then like my mom dying and having to mm-hmm. like make some pretty adult decisions around around that, and so, and then having COVID, and like I felt like I was losing a lot of my youth because of that, basically. And so I just, um, I just like really embraced socializing and relaxing, which is like not what, you know, Oxford academia rewards, you know, it wants you to sit in the library all the time. Yes. And, and, and nor is it the stereotype. Yeah, um, exactly. And I guess it's, um, the, the partying and the relaxing is something you won't have so much time for now as a, uh, as a PhD student in, in McGill. Yeah. Now, all of the philosophical experiences that you've talked through so far are largely on the ancient side of things. Um, and I gather what you're now doing is the philosophy of nature, which, um, well, I'm interested to hear, first of all, exactly how you're understanding the philosophy of nature and also to what extent uh, it, it does overlap with ancient philosophy. Is, is the connection there necessary or is there a philosophy of nature being done in, in a contemporary context, perhaps detached from the ancient philosophical underpinnings? Yeah, so definitely the latter. I would say what I do is sort of ancient natural philosophy, and in part because the learning curve in ancient is just so high that like once you get on the treadmill, you just like have to stay on it. Like it would sort of make no sense for me to leave now and try to develop some other skill set. And I'm also interested in in ancient natural philosophy because of the kinds of problems that they were working through and the conceptual resources that they had. But is there some other branch of it? Yes it's kind of hard to find. Like I couldn't name for you off the top of my head who the big figures are in philosophy of nature in part because it doesn't exist. Mm. Like I think I was trying to articulate in that, um, in our introductory emails, like, you know, 
what would have been natural philosophy in the early modern period eventually fragmented into the hard sciences. Mm. And so it's like, you know, biologists and chemists and physicists, they're all doing what used to be natural philosophy. And at least as far as I can tell, it kind of ended around like Bergson's creative evolution. Are you, are you guys familiar with Bergson? So the French philosopher? Yeah. Like I don't, I'm not saying his work ended the field. I just mean like around the time that he was writing was sort of the end of when you could be a true like polymath mm-hmm. or a true expert in multiple domains where he could be completely up to date, like literally as up to date with the state of the art in biology and evolutionary theory, while also being, you know, a philosopher who wrote his dissertation on Aristotle in Latin, like things like that were going on. Does it exist later too? Like, yes, I just read some work by Simon Don, a French philosopher, and he's extremely up to date with the science of his day, which is just remarkable because he's writing in the mid 20th century. Yeah. So I don't know. What is it? Not really clear, I would Mm. say. Yeah. Uh, Like there's guys like in the UK doing, you know, animalism or whatever. Are humans animals? Yes. That's, (laughs) that's part of Philip nature. You know, it was also sort of canceled for political reasons because you can't really believe that we have an essential nature. Ah, I see. So, okay. Mm, That's interesting. Hmm. What were the problems that like interested? Because you mentioned there were some problems that they were interested in. You were interested in like how they approach those problems. Like wh- what kind of problems? Yeah, yeah. No, I'll talk you stand out to you. Yeah. Okay. Let Let me just preface by saying like I don't really conceive of myself as a philosopher of nature, but that's where I want to end up. Mm. So like it, it like hasn't happened yet. It's kind of like nascent. There is a guy I study with at Concordia just down the street, who um I also studied with my undergrad, who is doing Philip Nature. And he is just incredible. So I'm, I'm trying to take all of his classes, basically. But what was going on in the ancient world? Well, basically, let's just stick to Western philosophy, okay? But you can look at the invention of philosophy and science. And you can look at the kinds of problems that they were working through. So there are like standard explananda in the ancient world, one of which is like a lunar eclipse. How do you explain a lunar eclipse? Other things were like the parts and generations of animals. And so I'll kind of talk you through like a narrative, let's say, of how that actually worked. You know, so you start with Thales and you have this guy who thinks that like, oh, yeah, there's only one kind of thing and it's water. Ultimately, at bottom, everything's water. And you have other guys competing saying, no, man, it's air, you know, it's breaths and so on. These are like debates. Yeah. And then you have (laughs) other guys who are like the principles, the material principles, man, they're infinite. And I'll tell you why that's important, okay? You're looking at things around you in nature, and you're looking at a human being or a horse. And a horse has got some fleshy stuff, and it's got some hairy stuff. How do you explain the material composition of those two different things? Well, if you're Anaxagoras, you just say they're infinite. So anytime you need to explain something, you just invent a new material constituent. And you say that, well, there's just hairy stuff. You know, just as we had watery stuff over there, we have hairy stuff. The problem is you can only do this for things that are homeomerous, you know, that are composed of the same type of stuff, right? Like hair is all more or less the same thing. Water is all more or less the same thing. It's less clear in the case of like, you know, the composite human being or fleshes or something like that or food and so on. Then anyways, you have Empedocles who limits them to four. You have four elements. And this was an innovation. Now you explain things in terms of their combination. And, and these guys are all obsessed with like mixing, basically. 
Like, how do you explain how things come to be? Well, they've got to mix in some way. So Anaxagoras posits this like vortex like thing, you know, some, you know, he calls it noose, but it's not really um, mind, but it's not really a principle of reason. He doesn't use it in the way that he should, but basically it sort of stirs up the cosmos and causes mixing. And that's how you get the world that we see and natural phenomena. And Empedocles says that's absurd. He posits two forces, love and strife. Love works to aggregate things. Strife works to separate them. And then you have Plato, who's dissatisfied, blah, blah, blah. He plays a physicist. We don't care about Plato. Then you have Aristotle. Okay, Aristotle is the teacher. And he's dissatisfied with all these guys. Now, he has his own narrative of the whole thing. But his big complaint of their story is, how do you explain the regularity of natural phenomena? Okay, so let me ask you guys. Animals have teeth, yeah? How come they have teeth? And why do they have teeth every single time? Why does every member of the species horse have teeth formed in the way they do? How would you explain that regularity? I'm going to pass it over to Darwin for that one. Um, <laughs> Lewis? Gosh, I'm on the spot. I think that the explanation I would want to give would be a scientific one. Um, yeah, it's go a scientific on. one that I don't have the resources to give. I, I, I see. don't know. How, how would you give that explanation? Okay, so Aristotle's innovation is to explain it in terms of final causes. So you had all these guys before, and all they're talking about are the material causes, and maybe at best the efficient cause, you know, mixing and so on, love and strife and so on. Well, now you need to have a final cause. In order to explain what teeth are, you have to explain what they're for. They're for chewing, cutting food, aiding in digestion. And if animals don't have them, they die. So the innovation there was to explain natural phenomena with some purpose or goal in mind, which like, you know, we sort of abandoned the idea that nature works towards some end, which I think is correct. It doesn't, there's no like divine plan, let's say, but does it have some goals? Absolutely. And do you need those goals in order to explain how things actually shake out? Yes, absolutely. So that was kind of one of the big innovations. And then, you know, Aristotle invents like biology and science and so on and, and gives them gives a kind of account of the generation of, of animals and gives an account of like their parts and so on and how these parts will combine. And you have to talk about the organa, right? Like what the organs of the body are tools and what is their function? That's, that's what you need to describe. Yeah, great. Th- those sound like really interesting questions to grapple with. Uh, I'm wondering whether the project is trying to map out objective distinctions that are out there in the world or whether we're simply trying to carve the world out into joints that seem interesting to us, given the way that we perceive the world. I wonder which of these two projects we're trying to do, or, or whether you think we can even make a distinction between these two kinds of projects at all. Well, I'm, I'm looking at this as like a historiographer. Okay. Right? Like, like these, these problems have not been settled. Mm. I mean, I think that's generally true for ancient philosophy. Like, the problem of universals and particulars has not been settled. What are we doing in metaphysics today? We're doing neo-Aristotelian metaphysics of grounding about ways of being, you know, which we're getting straight up from the metaphysics. So one thing I like about these projects is that they're not, they're not dead, you know, and just because we've invented science, you know, well, now all of your research is paid for by big pharma and, you know, like food companies, like that has problems too, basically. I think the goal for the ancients was to see nature as it was. I don't think they really had any conception that maybe, you know, it's, up to us or something like this. Also, mm. like Aristotle's world, for instance, is like hyper-rational. Like it has to make sense. Mm. And it's eternal. It's always been this way. 
And so with that starting point in mind, we just then explain what we see. And other people, you know, like the Stoics read in like uh, some divine plan or something like that. But I don't think they're really seeing like what is our role in the whole thing. I think it's like probably a later innovation. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds about right. Well, thanks yeah. so much, Alex. And thanks so much for joining us. Oh, cheers. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Philosopher's Nest. You can find our website at www.philosophersnest.com. And if you're a graduate philosophy student who might like to come on and join us for an episode, feel free to reach out to us at thephilosophersnest at gmail.com.